I'm Danny Stover, and this is Today in TO, a podcast that takes a look at the biggest stories in the city and connects the dots on what's going on. And this might just be the worst year for dots. On today's episode, Toronto's designated waterfront area is about 2,000 acres, which is roughly the size of the entire downtown core. So you'll learn what's going on from Ontario Place in the West to the Portlands in the East and beyond. Also, what is it like to fight wildfires in Ontario? And what's in store for this record-breaking season? Plus, the history behind the first and second major fires in Toronto. These date back to 1849 and 1904, respectively, and they did some major damage. All of that coming up on Today in T.O. Did you know that Toronto's designated waterfront area is about 2,000 acres, which is roughly the size of the downtown core? So imagine that from Bathurst to Sherbourne, from front to Bloor. That's a pretty large swath of land. And if you want to get technical, it goes from Dowling Ave in the west to Coxwell in the east. But for the purpose of this conversation, we're going all the way to Scarborough. First, there's been a lot of talk about what is to be done with the Western portion, and the advocacy group Ontario Place for All has lawyered up and released an outline stating that the federal government should use the Impact Assessment Act to review and possibly overrule the Ford government's vision for Ontario Place, which includes a massive internationally privately owned spa, a giant parking lot, a music venue, and the relocation of the Science Centre. Norm DePasquale is co-chair of the Grassroots Organization. We have to go back to, um, you know, the, the vision behind Ontario Place, which was a place to reflect and celebrate Ontarians, give each Ontarian like a cottage in a backyard and, and a place to, to learn and grow. And then things like IMAX. IMAX had its launch um, at Ontario Place and now it's a global company. But, you know, great Canadian company with an incredible product, but needed a venue to, to show that off. So I think there's a fit. To, to celebrate and reflect Ontario in terms of its green space, as well as businesses that are, are up and coming with, with incredible products. So let's bring that focus back to Ontario. If you listen to the provincial government, they're saying, let's build um, an international tourist destination. And that was really never the intent of Ontario Place. So we put forth a proposal that celebrates and reflects Ontario, but then has room to revitalize things like the West Commons with outdoor performance areas and restaurants, cafes, places to be on the water and, and swim and touch the water. So we're trying to bring Ontario Place back to its roots and its entire reason for existence. For more on this vision, you can poke around ontarioplaceforall.com slash a better idea. So that kind of covers one portion of the lakeshore. But along the east lakefront, you've got Queen's Key, Sugar Beach, the Portlands, which includes Cherry Beach, Villiers Island. You've got Tommy Thompson Park, Ashbridges, Woodbine, Kew Beach, and the Bluffs in Scarborough. This is a big stretch of wetlands, and parts of it are being developed. And there are a lot of moving parts, which includes a lot of moving people. Here is Josh Matlow, one of the Toronto mayoral candidates, on how to bring reliable rapid transit to this unique part of the city and beyond. Now, on the waterfront, we need a light rapid transit that's going to connect uh, Queen's Key 
all the way over to Villiers Island from Union Station. There's been a lot of development, as you know, uh, for many years there. Um, there's, uh, there's, a, there's a radio station that you might know. There's uh, George Brown uh, uh, College campus. There's a lot of development, a lot of new residents in the area, and tens of thousands to come. But there isn't any reliable rapid transit. So I'm going to get moving to make sure that we connect uh, the, the distillery district in Corktown and, and Queens Key and the Lower Donlands and the Portlands uh, for, you know, for years to come. We need to be able to invest in it, and that's why I'm going to be putting forward money over 30 years to amortize what the city should be investing into it. But I'm also calling on the provincial and federal government to partner with us, because that's how we're going to be able to build transit there. And this comes along with announcements that I've made to build the the East LRT in Scarborough up to Melbourne to connect U of T uh, Scarborough campus uh, to rapid transit, along with extending Shepherd over to Nielsen. If we do these projects that have been on the books for years, but nobody's ever invested in them, we'll be able to improve the lives of so many people, and that's what a mayor needs to lead. To help pay for this, Matlow's plan, if elected mayor, is to implement a commercial parking lot levy. It's one of the few tools in the City of Toronto Act that Toronto has to actually raise revenue. And staff project that that could raise between $176 million and over $500 million every single year. That doesn't mean that it's about, you know, it's, it's going to exempt like small grocers and little plazas and things like that. But for the Walmarts of the world, they can afford to contribute and then we can actually start building transit. So a lot of the money is going to come from uh, this levy. Speaking of parking lots, sometimes the Lakeshore and Gardner and all the surrounding bits can certainly feel more like a parking lot than a corridor through the guts of the city. And you may have noticed that we kind of have a highway to nowhere in that the eastern portion of the Gardner, or at least a part of it, has been removed. And there's another chunk just kind of hanging out up there. Those are not the proper terms, but you get the idea. Some people have been lied to, frankly, by some of the candidates, that there's a debate about whether or not the eastern section, uh, east of Cherry over to the Don, is going to come down. It is going to come down because it's crumbling. So in other words, it's either going to be taken down or it's going to fall down on people's heads. That's really, that's the only option. Mm -hmm. So it is going to be taken down. The question is, do we rebuild it up in the air or do we do it on the ground? If we do it on the ground, we're going to be able to save $568 million. And we're also going to save money on the life cycle, the the, the maintenance of it every year moving forward in perpetuity and forever. So what I'm going to do is make decisions about how we're spending money more wisely, more pragmatically, and invest in transit once and for all. Transit once and for all, Ontario place for all. I love when things connect. On the way from one element, water to another, fire. What's in store for this fire season that's on track to be Canada's worst one ever so far? That's coming up after this. The federal government is warning that 2023 is on track to be the worst fire season ever. I'm sorry, fire season? Okay, so unfortunately, this is a thing. And already this year, there have been more than 2,200 fires, which have burned an area roughly the size of Belgium. Projections suggest the risk of wildfires will only increase in June and remain unusually high throughout the summer. And it's never good when things are described as sobering. 
but here we are. Across Canada, the wildfires have collectively burned more than 3.3 million hectares of land, which is around 12 times more than the average over the last decade. Why is this happening? Well, climate change, for one. The planet is warming, snow is melting earlier, and the vegetation is much drier. If you have an ignition, whether it's from lightning or humans, you're going to fuel fire much more quickly. Sabrina Bowman is Climate Action Lead at the Dais, which is a public policy and leadership institute at Toronto Metropolitan University. We've heard a lot of this conversation that the wildfires are separate from climate change, but the reality is that climate change across the country, it conclusively makes wildfires worse. Are wildfires going to happen regardless? Yes. Are some of them perhaps started by somebody carelessly flicking a cigarette? Probably. But the real issue is that the scale is going to be way worse with climate change than it already is. In fact, a number of studies have shown that the fires are worse. The Fort McMurray fire um, from a few years ago was studied and it was 1.5 to 6 times uh, more likely because of climate change. BC's record-breaking fires in 2017 were uh, two to four times more likely because of climate change. Um, So we're starting to actually see the data behind the intensity uh, and the frequency of these wildfires uh, is coming out, you know, all over the world. Um, and, and in Canada, we are seeing consistent data on the fact that all these wildfires are made way worse because of climate change. It's terribly destructive. And already more than 100,000 people in Canada have been displaced from British Columbia to Alberta, to the Northwest Territories, to Saskatchewan, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and here in Ontario. In fact, hundreds of firefighters from all over the world have flown to Canada to help out during this record-breaking season. And what's worse is that warmer and drier months are still ahead of us. Here is Luke McLeod, a former Type 1 wildland fire ranger, on what it's like battling fires across the country. A lot of it starts uh, on the approach. And so the big thing in Ontario, relatively flat and a lot of water sources. So when we're approaching, we're, we're in a helicopter uh, circling around this fire, looking for, you know, potential escape routes if the wind direction was to change, uh, the water source by which we're going to set up our pump, and uh, and kind of finding a bearing towards the fire, how big the fire is, and, and these sorts of things. I mean, in, in British Columbia, um, the approach is much different. You've got a lot of terrain and altitude to worry about, uh, and, and fire loves to run uphill very, very quickly. So there's some major differences there. It could be a lot scarier of a situation in British Columbia, a lot faster. So a lot more planning has to go in from the air uh, and ensuring that, first and foremost, safety of the firefighters is paramount when you're making your approach. And you kind of work backwards from, you know, where do we want to drop in? Uh, what does the weather look like? What is the weather forecast? These sorts of things. And then it, uh, it all happens pretty quickly. The plan is set, and, uh, and communication over radios is pretty constant, and that's kind of your eye in the sky is, is giving you the, the intel of, of where you should be, where your safe spots are, and so communication becomes paramount as well. Now, obviously, a big part of this story is smoke. Last week, smoke from the Quebec fires blew down into Ottawa, the GTA, and even the United States. The biggest concern with wildfire smoke is is what's called sort of fine particulate matter. And the reason why this is such a big concern is that it's so small that once it gets breathed in, it can actually travel into your lungs, into your bloodstream. So people who are older, asthmatics, people with heart conditions, even children, um, anybody who's spending a lot of time outdoors can can inhale this particulate matter and it can be uh, damaging to your health if you have asthma and, you know, the other concern, I think, right now is people with long-haul COVID or 
reduced lung capacity from COVID are also going to be having uh, increased risk from this this, uh, exposure. So long story short, it's very bad and it will probably get worse before it gets better. But if your climate anxiety is at an all-time high, and this is that feeling of worry about what's going on now mixed with hopelessness about it ever changing, there is some silver lining. This is going to be, in some ways, the new world war is not going to be people against people. It's going to be people trying to uh, help each other in the the very, very dramatic impacts of climate change. I think that we need to recognize that like, there is there should be no longer any question that climate change is affecting extreme weather around the world. There is a ton of data on this, um, and and we're going to start seeing more of this. So it's really important that we pull together because I think it's very easy to get very depressed. But uh, in fact, I believe this month in Europe, it was the first time that renewables overtook fossil fuels in terms of providing uh, energy for for European nations. Um, So it has been going up. And for the first time, renewables uh, overtook fossil fuels. And I think that's really positive. Europe is doing a lot on climate change. Canada is starting to do a lot on climate change. As much as it is scary that we have these really big weather impacts, we need to help each other in these, in these times of flooding and fires and drought. But we also have opportunities for a really hopeful future. On the topic of fire, the first major blaze in the history of Toronto was in 1849. Much of the market block, which made up the business core of the city, was destroyed. St. James Cathedral, Toronto City Hall, and St. Lawrence Market was damaged and torn down. The fire was discovered around 1 a.m. in the back of Graham's Tavern on the northeast side of King Street and Jarvis, formerly Nelson Street. Now, thankfully, some rain a couple of hours later stopped the fire from doing any more damage, but one life was lost. A man named Richard Watson, who was a publisher, for the Canadian and Upper Canada Gazette journals. So that was the first. The second major fire in the city's history happened 55 years later, in 1904. And the cause is still a mystery to this day. Producer Glenn Bergonier has more. And just like the fire in 1849, Toronto's second Great Fire was only basically noticed by luck at 8.04 p.m. in the heart of what was once considered the wholesale district which is currently the financial district. The fire was spotted as flames were noticed in the elevator shaft of the ENS Curry Limited Neckwear Factory, which was located at 58 Wellington Street West. And within less than an hour, all 17 fire halls within Toronto were called to action. And quite literally, every single firefighter available was on site. But as the flames quickly spread to the surrounding buildings in the district, the Toronto firefighters had to consider the factory that it started in an immediate loss so they can focus on saving the surrounding buildings. As to what actually started this fire, this is still actually considered one of Toronto's greatest unsolved mysteries. Some believe that it was an electrical fire started from faulty wiring, while others suggest that a stove might have just been left on at the end of the workday, which quickly developed into this massive inferno. But back to the fire. The mayor of Toronto at the time, who was Thomas Urquhart, started to call in favors from surrounding suburbs and cities requesting help which was answered very quickly, almost without delay. Within two hours of the calls for support, firefighters from as far as Hamilton and even Buffalo were arriving by special train to help contain the blazing inferno. But even with all the extra support and every firefighter in the city on scene, by 11 p.m. the fire had spread to both sides of Wellington, touched onto Front Street, and was spreading towards Young. Finally, after literally hours of life-threatening and beyond hazardous work, at 4 a.m., the massive fire was declared 
under control, and much of the inferno had finally been put out. Smaller fires continued to burn and the ruins were still smoldering for the next few days. This is still considered the largest fire in Toronto history, even bigger than its predecessor in 1849. But luckily, there were no fatalities while the inferno was blazing out of control. However, sadly, one Torontonian, uh, Mr. John Croft, was killed helping to clear the ruins after the fire was contained. And so in total, in 1904, over $10 million in damages were recorded. And if we bring that into modern dollars, that's roughly the equivalent of $337 million. And in a city of only 200,000 people, over 5,000 were immediately out of work due to the damage done to many of the factories in the district. But out of the ashes, three beautiful creations were born. The first was the introduction to new and revolutionary fire safety laws and standards, which forever changed fire safety in the city. The second was the near immediate expansion of Toronto Fire Services in honor of all the brave work they did to try to save the district. And third, part of the area that was claimed by the fire became what is now Union Station, which was built up in the following decade during the cleanup and rebuild. And now, when you walk through the financial district, it's basically impossible to tell that some 99 years ago, almost the entire area was nothing more than a smoldering ruin. Well, we've certainly covered a lot of elements today. And I hate it, thanks. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by 640 Toronto and features audio from shows across the Chorus Entertainment Network. My name's Danny Stover. Today in TO is produced by me, Glenn Bergonier, and David Spargala. Amanda Capito, Jason Chapman, and Chris Dunner are advisors to the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode next week, and it'll be the last one before Toronto goes to the polls and elects a new mayor. What a trip, huh? Till then... Share today and Tia with a friend, and we'll be together again so soon. Bye for now.